0: Like to uh, I, actually, I will guarantee we will finish with the 16th century uh, today, and so we will get up through um, the end of that time period and move into 17th century uh, beginning next week. Uh, I think it's time to speed up, but it's important that we understand what's going on in England because a lot of what's happening in England in the 16th century has direct ramifications and implications on why we are sitting here today, and we can trace our uh, denominational tree, if you will, back to uh, Reformation in England. With that being said, let us let us pray now. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we get to come together, as we get to be the church, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to be edified, and to see Christ exalted. Lord, we thank you for the time that we get to spend, even this morning, as we consider your providence and your sovereignty as you have promised to build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord. We thank you that we get to look back and see your mighty hand at work through the centuries. Father, I pray that as we consider what you have done and what you are doing, that our faith would be increased, that we would uh, look back on the past, Lord, and not just in some cold academic way, but that our faith and our trust and our reliance upon you will be ever increasing, that we would live today with confidence and boldness, that you are continuing to raise up and build your bride, and that we are a part of this long legacy. So we thank you. That you've called us and that you've drawn us into your church for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I don't have a favorite biblical author. Sometimes people ask, What's your favorite book of the Bible? And usually just the answer is the one that I'm reading right now. But Luke has a very fond, I have a very fond spot for Luke. Uh, Luke is a researcher. He's the author of the book of Acts. Luke is a historian. And Luke does his homework. And he is a Gentile. He is the only Gentile author of in the New Testament. And so there are many reasons to like and love Luke. Um, little trivia question, which you know the answer now that I've already done this, but if we were to ask who wrote the majority of the New Testament, most people would say, well, Paul, because he has all the letters. Actually, you count the words, it's Luke, Acts, and Luke, which really, in the beginning, when, when he wrote, Luke, Acts was one volume. That was in circulation. And then as John later writes his gospel and as the church in the first few centuries start to accept and, and, and use the circulation of the gospels. They, they, they break Luke-Acts. They put John there because they see it as a, as, understand it to be the fourth gospel. And so the, there is this break between Luke and Acts. But it is just volume two of the, of the gospel of Luke. And so in the book of Acts... Chapter 1, verse 8, this is the thesis statement of the entire book. Jesus is commissioning his apostles, and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, keyword witnesses, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what Luke will do through the rest of his book is he's very concerned, and I would encourage you as you read it in your own personal studies or when, however you do that you that you trace the locations because the the premise of the book he continues to build upon location what's the old saying in real estate location 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 well that's that's one of the re- uh, themes of of the book of acts and so what Luke is seeking to do with Theophilus is to show him the spread of the Christian message, of, of the, the apostolic witness. And, and I'm not here to give a whole breakdown and, uh, and structure and outline of the book of Acts, but I want you to understand that the beginning portions of the book of Acts deal with Jerusalem. Pentecost comes in chapter 2, where? Where? Jerusalem, and then you, would, if you would continue to read through this book, you will start to see the spread. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea. This is the surrounding regions you would find in, in chapter five as they are hearing about the apostolic witness, as 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 people are being healed, and the message is spreading. The apostles aren't leaving Jerusalem, but people from the it, it'll say uh, towards the end of chapter five, the surrounding regions or cities were coming to Jerusalem. This is Judea in chapter eight. It's the Samaritan Pentecost that occurs. You have Simon the magician, uh, as well as 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 what happens in Samaria, the, the outer regions, the outer regions, and so it is a testimony of the spread of the gospel and to the ends of the earth. This is completed when Paul, in, in Luke's understanding, this is completed when Paul gets to Rome, in chapter twenty-eight. You'll find the completion of the of the of the ge- geographic narrative or motif there. Luke will say, I think it's in chapter 27, and so we got to Rome, or so we entered Rome. And so the the idea was, now that the gospel had made it to the capital of the entire world, it was going to reach the entire world. And so I want you to think about that uh, by way of the spread of the gospel. And as we would look in Acts, and it's not just in the book of Acts, it's in the history of the Christian church, what are some of the ways in which the gospel was spread What are some of the ways in which the church grew? What are some factors that have led to church growth? Maybe we would ask. Persecution. Turn in your Bible now. Flip over a few chapters to chapter 8. At the beginning of chapter 8, we are coming uh, of Acts. We are coming off this great sermon, this great testimony by Stephen. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, cuts it straight, shoots straight, fearless, bold, yet humble. And Stephen gives this great testimony in the midst, of, in front of uh, the Pharisees, in front of the possibly the Sanhedrin, He would say this is is what leads to uh, the nail in his coffin, so to speak, in chapter seven, verse fifty one, he says, You stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. And so as he was proclaiming the gospel, starting in throughout the whole Old Testament, giving this whole picture that leads up to the Messiah, he is killed. He is killed for the faith. He's the first recorded martyr that we have. And then this character at the beginning of chapter 8 appears on the scene. Saul. In my translation it says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And then, consider here the end of verse 1. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So when Jesus in chapter 1 verse 8 says, You will be my witnesses in in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that it's going to be at times through persecution that the gospel is going to spread. So those that left the disciples, while the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, as says, it says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land, they didn't go and hide. They didn't just go underground and just, okay, this is too, this is too much for me. There's all this persecution in Jerusalem, and, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I'm going to go back to my old life where it's easy and it's comfortable. No, as the persecution came, they were, they were wise. They scattered But they were not silent. And we could see throughout history that it was on the heels or because of persecution. It caused people to scatter. And when they scattered, they brought the gospel with them. And this is important to see as we would consider here certain events that will happen in England. It is through persecution and the scattering that the seeds continued to be planted. And we will see some, uh, we're going to be able to look at some interesting and rather providential and remarkable events that occurred, especially, uh, we'll get to her, but Mary Tudor or Bloody Mary as as we've maybe come to know her as. So uh, I just want you to think about that since the foundation of the church, it's been through difficulties, it's been through trials that there has been gospel spread, but also understand it's not just through persecution. Because you could read at the end of chapter nine that the church was at peace and the gospel spread. And so really the, the, the the most important thing that we need to understand is that God is building his church through trials, through good times, through bad. Don't lament because there's been a freedom of persecution in America. Much where much has been given, much is required. And so we need to understand that at all times, regardless of what the civil magistrate, whatever it is, is doing, God is building his church. And for that, we are a part of it. And it is an amazing thing that we are part of. So with that, let us consider here the Reformation that has been brought into England. And you can't talk about the English Reformation without considering this man, which is, who is this guy? Oh, not King Henry VIII. This is Thomas whoa, 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 whoa. All right. So we did all that. That's great. Wonderful. I mean, I I know I, yeah, listen, I had my, I had my four espresso shots this morning and it looks like this thing did too. So here we go. All right. It was Cranmer, but I think I have another Cranmer slide. Oh, Oh, all right. Here we go. Yeah, we're going to get to Edward. So Cranmer. Cranmer is someone very important to consider in the history of the Christian church, or, or really the English Reformation. He is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he comes into uh, this role during the reign of King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII it reigns as the king in um, England from 1509 to fifteen. Forty-seven. Um, last week, we were considering him. Remember, he wanted to get out of his marriage. So, so, so he, um, the the Pope would not annul his marriage for political and religious reasons. So, the Church of England is founded. It is started because he he basically declares himself the head of the church. Uh, Henry does. Cranmer's like, okay, this is fine with me. I want to get out from uh, uh, papal authority anyways. And so Cranmer's got this master plan in mind that he's beginning to unfold. Is that he wants, he's, he's a Protestant. And he wants England to be Protestant. But he was patient. He was patient. Tyndale, we love William Tyndale. He was convinced that the Bible needed to be in English. And he needed to do it right then. Cramner had a long game in mind, and we are thankful for his long game. He survived the reign of King Henry. So he is in the, the Church of England as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Henry wants just to be the head of the church. He doesn't, he, it's not to him. He doesn't care about Protestant Catholic. He, the church is remaining Catholic. The Church of England is Catholic. And Henry just is like, well, I'm the Pope now. Of the, I'm the head of the Church of England. So, Cramner is able to survive the reign of Henry because he pushes a little bit at a time. He and him and Oliver Cromwell work together to get King Henry to approve of an English translation of the Bible. If Tyndale was a little more patient, he might have been a part of it. But nonetheless, Tyndale was a pioneer, just like Wycliffe was a pioneer for this time. So now in 36, 1536, uh, there is an approved, there's an authorization of an English translation of the Bible. And you know what they do? They go dig up Tyndale's work. They go dig up Tyndale's work and you say, well, this guy's done the legwork. So they take Tyndale's work, and later on, I believe I had said it last week, they end up using Tyndale's translation of the Bible or his, his translation work. He didn't do the whole Bible. 83% of Tyndale's translation work was, was implemented into the King James Version, but that's the 17th century, so we'll get there uh, next week. So as he survived under King Henry... He thrived under Edward. Edward is the son of Henry. Edward comes into power in 47 because Henry could, his first wife couldn't bear a son. So he gets that marriage annulled. Then he, then he marries Anne Bo- Boylan. She can't bear a son. So he gets, he gets out of that. And then he finally has a son. He has Edward VI. Henry dies. Edward is nine years old. And he becomes king of England. It's interesting to think of a nine-year-old king who only lives until he's 15 or 16, but he was committed to the Protestant cause. And as I thought about that, I had to think, what was I committed to at nine years old? (laughs) Yeah, jumping on trampolines and running around. But he was committed to the Protestant cause. He was able to actually read Greek read Latin. This is is King Henry, or King Edward. Uh, He was reared in the scriptures, and he believed in the truth of the Protestant, what was coming out of the Protestant Reformation. So when a Protestant supporter is now king, Cranmer's ready to run. He was treading carefully, and so through, uh, through C- Edward and Cranmer, uh, the Church of England is, is, is transitioning into a Protestant church. And so one of the ways in which Cranmer does this is through the book of common prayer I've got a couple little copies of it here this has become a standard book in the uh, uh, Anglican church today but these are little pocket versions of it and so he revises this book of common prayer I'll give you some uh, examples of what it is are any of you familiar I'm sure you've heard of the book um, of common prayer anybody familiar with some of the contents of it there's marriage ceremonies in there some use it. We didn't yesterday, but right, right. Um, yeah, there's marriage ceremonies. There's, there's actually everything. Your, your hymnal is in there, which is the Psalter. Uh, your actual prayers that would be prayed in the public services, the liturgy, everything. What are you supposed to do at Easter services? How you're supposed to appoint deacons and bishops. It's, it's basically the manual for church, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about this because this is one of Cranmer's means for Reformation in England, and it is the Book of Common Prayer. It is a field guide, as a, as we'd say, for prayer, church liturgy, the order of services, how you are to conduct your service. It's not made up on the fly. And everywhere, whoever adheres to the book, you flip to the day, and that's what you do. It has the psalter, it has your hymnal, it has every thing. It is the worship guide for the church. We're a little disconnected from this because we're independent. We're an independent Baptist church. We don't have a book of church order. We don't adhere to a book of common prayer. We don't think it's a bad thing at all. It's just not in our tradition, which is fine. And so in 1549, this was phase one of Cramner's um, Reformation, he removes. He removed the centrality of the sacrifice of the mass and the bodily presence of Christ. So the first effort that he wants to do is, is, is get away from the language of, remember the word we've talked about a lot of times here? Transubstantiation, the, the, the idea of the literal body and blood of Christ. So he's, he's removing that from the book of common prayer. And so it becomes more neutral or silent on uh, the views of, of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And then in 1552, this was his phase two as he's revising this book. He removed all the prayers for the dead, all praise for Mary and the saints. And he now went from being silent to embracing the reformed view on the Lord's Supper. He is a mastermind in what he's doing right here as he's working through this because now that he's made these revisions to the Book of Common Prayer, every priest, every bishop, and every parishioner now mouthed the words of the Protestant faith in all of England in a language that they understood because this is the guide for the church. So as he's changed this, whatever they were believing is what they were hearing we know from even Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing. And so Cramner says, well, I might not be able to convert them all immediately, but I can constantly be having them hear these truths. The Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper, to remove the questionable and outright wrong doctrines and dogma that had been seeping in for the centuries. And so through the revision of the Book of Common Prayer, Cramner is building a Protestant church in England. Furthermore, so the first area that he does is the Book of Common Prayer. Second, and he's doing this without resistance at the time. It's wise to see, and I think there's a principle there, sometimes change needs to happen incrementally. You try to do too much too fast, and it might not turn out so good, but Cramner did this well. So, he drafts what is called the 42 Articles, this is, the, this is the beliefs and practices of the Church of England. It's been revised now to 39. Um, I think that was under King James. They brought it down to 39. But this is everything from basically a statement of what we believe. And it touches on a variety, 42 different subjects. What we believe concerning the Lord's Supper. What we believe concerning salvation. What we believe concerning authority. What we believe concerning justification. And so of these 42 articles, it is clearly a protestant church at this time so this common prayer the what we believe statement and then there's one other area if you want to help and, and contribute to reformation you must i would say you must we'd see through history influence the universities influence the schools we kind of see that in our world today do we not What's coming out of the schools and universities? A lot of garbage. There's a lot of garbage. That didn't happen yesterday. That happened with the people you appointed 20 years ago. What are we teaching now? So, he appoints two Reformed theologians. He doesn't totally agree with everything, but he understands in order to get England to where he, need, he wants to go, and he's not doing this alone. He's got support. He's got the support of the king. He's just the, kind of the, the front runner of this. He, he appoints two guys. He appoints Peter Martyr uh, as a professor of divinity at Oxford during the entire reign of Edward, 47 to 53. And then Martin Busser, uh professor of divinity at Cambridge. These are the two big schools in England. Oxford and Cambridge. I'm sure you've heard of them. They are not at all what they once were today. So what they are today is not what they were then. You understand that through the history of universities, schools, They've always been founded as biblical theological schools. I mean, th- the big ones: Harvard, Harvard, Princeton, yeah. Yale. Yale. Now, Princeton was uh, the Presbyterian school, right? And Princeton goes 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 liberal in the in the in the in the nineteenth century. So Machen leaves there and starts Westminster, but. Um, yeah, Princeton, Yale. Here's a trivia one. What's the first Baptist university in the history of the United States? Duke is, Duke is Methodist, I believe. The first Baptist university, school for training Baptist ministers, was called Brown University. And at the time of it, it was actually called, it was originally Providence College. And that was changed, but Brown is a bat, was a founded as a Baptist school, not Baylor. You got it. You got it. Yes, yes. Literacy, literacy. What was the book? What was the book that everybody had? So in the Church of England, when they start promoting literacy, they promote the reading of the English Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. And they want to get the Book of Common Prayer into every home, as, as they do. So those are, the two, those are the two documents. You want to learn how to read Book, Book of Common Prayer and your English Bible. Sometimes I long to live centuries ago. <laughs> not that I lo- I'm thankful, because uh, Acts, what is it, Acts 17, God has appointed everyone, their, their places, their times, their allotment, where we will live, how long we will live. Uh, but I look back with fondness of, of some of these times, so not without their trials as well. I'm sure somebody, if they're talking about the history of the church in 200 years, I hope that they look back at this season with fondness and say, wow, What a revival and reformation that happened in the 21st century of the Christian church. So, influences the universities. Because if you get your teachers teaching something, they're instructing their students. And really, this is a way of making disciples. You want to make Protestants? Put Protestants as teachers so that they would raise up Protestants and they would influence them. Do not be afraid of the word indoctrination. Everybody indoctrinates, okay? We use it as a bad word because we think, oh, what are the school systems? Yeah, yeah, they're indoctrinating. So are we. The question is not not whether or not we indoctrinate, but is what is it? What is the substance of the doctrine that you give to people? And so that's why we teach little kids kids, Songs, Jesus loves me, or Father Abraham, or whatever it is. Why? Because we want to, uh, first of all, music for children is the catechism. And so that's how we want to teach them truth. We want to cement in their minds uh, these wonderful truths about who Jesus is about the many promises that we've received. That's why we sing to children. That's why we teach classes. That's why catechisms have been created so that you would do the simple question and answer, question and answer to instruct systematically. And so Cramner knows this because as he's getting these students that had soft minds that were coming into Oxford and Cambridge, what he was going to do, he going to put good teachers there. And so as a result of having good teachers He was going to produce good students. The teaching ministry of the church matters as well. And so, Cramner was also, though he was on an island, he did not live in isolation. So he actually agreed in principle, and him and Calvin were going to host an international conference together. Ligonier was not the first one to, to start major conferences T4G, though it's the last one this year, was not the beginning of conferences coming together. Cramner understood, let's have a united Protestant faith. Yeah, we, we, you know, let's agree on the, the, the very fundamentals of the faith. Salvation, the solas, those things. We might vary a little bit in our ecclesiology. Certainly Calvin's ecclesiology and uh, doctrine of the church, the government of the church. I mean, when we say ecclesi- polity, how it's structured, um, bishops, elders, those kind of things. But in principle, they agreed on the fundamentals of the faith. And so they, they were going to host this conference this is another reason why I would have wished I lived a long time ago, because I would love to have attended the Cranmer calvin conference, wherever that would have been held. Though it did not actually come to fruition, they were in contact with one another. So all of this is transpiring, and this is good. England England is going through reformation, revival, and then Edward dies. We understand at this time there is no separation of church and state. And so as your monarch goes, so goes the church or the time of peace or a time of persecution. I read that in Acts to you because the beginning and the the thrust of Cranmer's reformation came in a time of peace. But then comes a time of persecution. And that's what happens next. Henry dies at 16 years old and he has no heir. So all those girls that Henry had by way of the, uh, I think it was called the Edict of Succession, or it, it, it was a part of the English law. The rightful heir to the throne was... Edward's first daughter that had made it to adulthood. Now, they try to do this kind of underhanded thing. Cramner sees what's going to happen. And Henry's first daughter, her name is Mary, and she is Catholic. And so Cramner's thinking, oh, no. If a Catholic takes the throne, we're going to be in trouble. And so he tries to get, he tries to get Edward to do this kind of underhanded, change the rules. And so they actually appoint Lady Jane Grey to be the queen of England. And she's the queen of England for a total of like 19 days because the the governing body, the parliament, the, 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 the higher ups there recognize the law is the law. And just because you want to try to advance the Protestant cause, the law says that the rightful heir to the throne is Mary Tudor. And so Mary Tudor here, who lived from, 1516 to 1558, takes the throne. She's the half-sister of King Edward, the daughter of Henry VIII. She took the throne in 53 when Edward dies. And like I said, she is a devout Roman Catholic. And so she had seen what had been going on in England and she was ready to reverse it all. Because remember, Cramner is also the one who, who annulled Henry's first marriage. So in Cramner, annulling Henry's first marriage, he basically tells Mary, you're illegitimate. How do you think Mary felt about Cramner? She'd been pushed to the side. She'd been treated uh, by way of, you know, with Cram- Cramner as the illegitimate child of a marriage that should never have happened according to uh Cramner in the annulment of the marriage she's got a bone to pick with this guy and she just took supreme power in england another name for her that we have come to know her as is bloody mary This is the first Bloody Mary. It's not a drink. A drink became called a Bloody Mary, but the name is coined here. And why was she called Bloody Mary? Off Off with your heads. She was just, I don't... She was just downright mean and rotten. She was just a rotten person. Very, very... Yeah, vengeance, scornful, held grudges. Oh, yes. Mm hmm. Eliminate him completely. She sentenced 283 Protestants to be burned. And she took pleasure in the death of these Protestants she was also, in my reading and study of her, um, she was a very uh, emotion-driven person at a time where emotions didn't tend to rule. Um, She wanted to marry, and she ended up marrying the, um, the king of Spain, and she wanted to marry him, and marries him because she loves him. I forget his name. He doesn't want really anything to do with her. So she's infatuated with the king of Spain. He thinks this is a good alliance. Now, if Spain, and, which was an enemy of England for a long time, now if Spain and England are aligned through this political marriage, she, she wanted to love him, and he just wanted the alliance. And so that drove her nuts. It drove her mad because she would not get the attention from her husband that she wanted and so in this marriage, which the other Engl- a lot of the English at the time said, what are you doing? They're our enemy. It forced them into a war with France that they weren't ready for, but they thought maybe together it could strengthen the alliance. Mary made some poor decisions. So as a result of Mary taking the throne, persecution arises and English Protestants fled the continent. And so as they leave the continent, where do they go? A lot of them, Holland. Yes, Holland. Yeah, actually, they do go over to Holland. And then you start seeing the Dutch, uh, which uh, big time in the the next century. But they go over to Holland. But many landed in Geneva. Good things are happening in Geneva, right? Remember the, the missionary enterprise of Calvin, sending them out to France. Geneva is a safe place. So under Calvin, who who ends up dying, and then Beza, Theodore Beza, who comes after him, they produced a great work. They produced the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is an English Bible, if if you're not familiar with it. So in the midst of persecution, something great happens. They don't run away and hide and go under the hills, but they work and they continue to do a work that is advancing the kingdom of God. And this is in the production of the Geneva Bible. And we'll talk a little bit about that on the next slide here. But let's go continue with Mary. She executes Thomas Cramner. Cramner refuses to leave the continent. Not necessarily sure he was he was there. He was an Englishman to the end. And so he was going to st- Stand it out. Try to, I guess, maybe make it, but to no avail. And so, really, John Fox does a great job, and here's my first book plug, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read it. If you haven't read it, you're doing yourself a disadvantage. If this is the first time that you've heard about that, buy a copy and read it. There's just short stories but you want to be challenged. You want to be convicted. You want to read of courage. I mean, you can read. You could read uh, one account of a martyr's story in really like four minutes. And so this book is filled with this, the, those that have died for the faith throughout the centuries. I, I, I this is one of my many copies, but the first time I, I got a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and I started reading through it, there were many pages that just had tear stains on them. As I as I read of the courageous men and women who died for the faith, um, and so you will find even in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he has the story of Thomas Cramner and his. Let me read it for you briefly, and not the whole story, but let me read to you concerning the execution of Thomas Cramner. In November of 1553, Cramner was charged with treason and imprisoned. He stood a mock trial with Reformers Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, whom he was forced to watch burn. Mary's agents wore him down, shaved his head, And scraped the tops of his fingers, of his right hand, those that had been anointed in his ordination years earlier. Then in jail on the night of March 20, 1556, Cramner succumbed to his ultimate humiliation. Shivering with fear of the stake awaiting him the next morning, he signed decrees recanting. Every reformational conviction and affirming the Bishop of Rome as the true head of Christ's church. He quivered at how far he had fallen. Let me pause here. At the point of Cramner's recanting, it was the duty and obligation of Mary to stay his execution. Because he has now recanted, and that's what the law had said. He was not to be executed because he had had taken back everything that he had done. But remember, Mary wasn't after him because she deemed him a heretic. Mary was after him because of the annulment of Henry's wedding. So no matter what Cramner was to do, he could have recanted the whole thing. He was going to die. And so Mary had sought her revenge upon him regardless. And so he recants under the fear, under the great pressure, all the good work that he had set out to do. He quivers and he breaks. He breaks. Consider, on the next day, perhaps even, Cramner himself was surprised by the calm and courage of his last hour. Asked to make public his true convictions, Cramner clearly recanted his midnight recantations. Boldly declared his faith by the Nicene Creed, clearly separated himself from Rome, and declared he would thrust his right hand first into the flames to purge the cowardice of last night, last evening's signatures. And that is what he did do. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was bound by a steel band at the stake. He says, This hand hath offended, lowering it into the flames. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He moaned and then collapsed into the fire. Cramner died a martyr for the cause of Christ. And we, though we are not Anglicans, we are thankful for the work that Thomas Cramner did. Because, as we will get into the next century, the Baptists come from the English Protestants. You're in a Baptist church because of the Reformational Protestant work that was done in England in the 16th century. And so we will consider that again next week. But Mary is remembered as a failure by her people. She dies in 1558 with no heir to the throne. And her legacy is not a good one. Doesn't, this isn't, this isn't a, a Catholic Protestant thing, just in general. She, was, she entered them politically into a war that they could not get into. She, she, she ruled by emotion. And she is looked at as a dark stain on English history. And Mary Tudor, is not, she was not a good queen for England. But... The blessing that came during her reign was this, the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is one of the most historically significant translations of the Bible into English. It, is, it precedes the King James Version by 51 years, and it was the primary Bible of the 16th century. English Protestantism was used, and it was used by William Shakespeare, Oliver Cromwell, John Knox... John Doan and John Bunyan. So, as Bunyan is writing The Pilgrim's Progress, his scripture source is this book. It is this Geneva Bible. It was one of the Bibles that was taken to America on the Mayflower. You can actually see a copy of this in the Pilgrim Hall Museum. It has been collected from the several passengers on the Mayflower. The the Geneva Bible was used by many English dissenters. And it was and it was still respected by Oliver Cromwell's soldiers at the time of the English Civil War. It was made into a little booklet, and it became the soldier's pocket Bible. This was the most widespread Bible before the King James. And many were blessed. Because of it, so let 's go here, and this is this is where we will super fast track through the rest of the sixteenth century fifteen fifty eight uh, Mary dies she 's got no heir, so where does the throne go now? It goes to Elizabeth, who was because now think because Henry's first marriage was annulled, and Henry's second marriage with Anne Boylan was was annulled and considered nothing, but all of that got reversed because Mary took the throne, and so the the next heir was the daughter of Anne Boylan and King Henry, so it is the half-sister of Mary, and this is Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, to which right now, I think on the throne, the queen is Elizabeth II right now. But she is the first. From 1553 to 1603, she lived a long life. Uh, she's the of Bloody Mary. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Same father, different mother. Um, and she is the half-sister, and she is a Protestant. She's the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boylan. She restores the church church to the Protestant church. Now, in my understanding, she might be one of the greatest monarchs in the history of England. Um, Her reign is hard to match with what she was able to do, the life that she lived, her piety... Uh, she is an example. She set the standard for what a monarch, how a monarch is to reign and to rule in England. She restores the church to a Protestant church. And so all that was undone under Mary is brought back under Elizabeth. She has a long reign. She is she reigns as queen for. 44 years if you'd noticed Edward reigns for 6 years Mary reigns for 5 or 6 years and those short reigns make it difficult to gain any stability the, key, the change in Catholic, Protestant and so Elizabeth provides stability for Uh, the the for England for for the nation here's an interesting fact she is actually the last queen of England did you know that because it wasn't England after her once once it becomes Great Britain it is a different but she is the last queen of that part of the continent and so now it is the United Kingdom or Great Britain and she got the title called the Virgin Queen. She was so wise. She was so wise. She never married. She remained a virgin all the days of her life, but she used her virginity and the fact that she was not married to her political advantage. And so by remaining unmarried, she courted kings of France. She courted those from Spain, but she would never actually marry. And she used it as a political maneuver because she kept England from getting into m- many wars. Though they wanted to pursue her, they thought maybe there's a chance let's not enter into war because she is single, and we could form a political alliance. She was first an Englishwoman, and her first or her cause was for england and so as she reigned she used her virginity to her advantage and so she stayed off any major conflicts she created political stability throughout england she built up and championed the protestant cause the church of england was strengthened and she has left a lasting legacy as the queen she received uh this compliment from the Pope, Pope Sixtus V. And he says she is the only woman, the mistress of half an island. And yet she makes herself feared by Spain, by France, by the empire, by all. Through her time, the English Navy grew in rapid time and, and, and great Um, number. Uh, So politically, military, everything about her reign was uh, that of blessing. Uh, It was a time of peace. It was a time of prosper. And she goes into the 17th century and then she dies and is forever remembered as one of the greats in the history of England. And so now this brings us to the close of the 16th century. And I thought maybe when we started, I would spend a couple, maybe a week or two on the 16th century. But as I worked through it, I came to realize so much happened in this 100-year in this period that if we do not understand this one century, I don't know besides the first century if there's ever been a century in the history of the Christian church that had such an impact, such a significance of what went on from really 1515 when coffee enters into Europe until the end in, six, in, the, in 1603 on the island there with Elizabeth. Um, and so it, is, it has been... my joy to to share with you the sixteenth century to walk through it from Germany to Geneva to Rome and now to the island, yes, Virginia, yeah, Jamestown, the lost one, yes, they began to sail west, and so colonization begins um. Maybe some of you know this, I'm not, I'm not t- entirely familiar, um, but I do know that Australia was a, uh, really a place for the prisoners, that they would send down to uh, English prisoners, and I don't remember when um, they began populating Australia, but I don't know if it was through Elizabeth or maybe a later time, but definitely the colonies uh, began, and... And that's, we we get back to the whole of what this is. We look at people, characters, movements, Bibles. The one constant in all of this is that God is building something beautiful. And it's his church. And it's his bride. And so as we consider this, it's the story of nations. It's the story of kings and queens. It's the story of God. And how he uses these means to accomplish his ends. And I don't know about you, but I I just get these little glimpses of some master plan that's going on. And I stand in awe of that You you would raise up a persecutor. You would raise up a time of peace. And like, who but God could come up with such a story? It's... It's mind-boggling, it's, it causes me to, to, to walk by faith, to look back at the bad times and the good times, and causes me to plow ahead with resolve that God is working in his church. And we have been called to be a part of that work in the 21st century. So this is their legacy, but we are building ours. We are the church of God in this place for this time. And it is not to be apathetic. It is not to sit back with uh, being lethargic. But it is to labor and to toil and to work to to advance the kingdom of God. We are in need of revival and reformation today. And so, as we've seen it happen, the danger is when we get complacent. The Protestant church is not a new church in the 15th, 16th century. It is a revival of the apostolic witness. It is a revival and a reformation of a church that had gone awry. And if we just kind of coast, we will find ourselves where the church was in the 15th century and in need of a reformation. And so we need to always, as the reformers say, and I hold to it, semper reformanda, right, always reforming. Always looking and considering, where have we gone? How do we bring ourselves back in line with the scriptures? How do we bring ourselves in line with, with what God has declared and decreed for us? And so, again, I look at this time, I am thankful. It is through the good, the bad, and the ugly that God has worked. And it is through broken vessels. Luther, Calvin, Cromwell. Cromwell. Even Queen Elizabeth, as great as she was, sinners. And so you could see that through the testimony even of Scripture. Read Hebrews 11, and you read all those names on there, and you're like, Noah, you were a drunk. David, we know your story. Abraham, you were a liar. Moses, you killed people. Samson, don't, let's not go there, right? How did he make his name into that? But it, those are the people that God uses, throughout history. And so to encourage you, and and we'll, we'll close here, you can be used by God despite your failures, your shortcomings, your perceived inabilities. God uses broken vessels. And to that we are thankful. And remember, we stand in a long line of godly men and women let us pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for this history which is your story and we get to be a part of and we get to look back and so father i pray that as we've considered this this one century as we look back on the facts let us look forward and live by faith that you are doing a marvelous work humble us That we might know and understand that you have called us into this work. Oh, what an amazing thing, Lord, that you, the creator of the universe, would call us to accomplish your ends. Well, let us not be cocky about this, Lord, or arrogant, but with a humble confidence, living for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.